Hello, friends. It has been so long. I'm so, so sorry. Uh, it's been so long since I've been able to upload another episode of The Theory of Enchantment. There's been so much going on. Um, a few weeks ago, I was in Europe on a speaking tour, teaching the principles of The Theory of Enchantment. Um, I had a Dave Rubin taping also last week, so be sure to check that out if you get a chance. YouTube my name, Chloe Valdery, Dave Rubin. Um, so anyway, there's just been a whole host of things happening, uh, and I didn't have time to really do a do an episode for you guys, but I'm so excited. It's the end of the year. I'm back in it, and I have such an ex- exciting episode for you guys this week. In this episode, I interview my father, uh, who is a man who I find very inspirational, who, who I certainly um, have gotten a lot of my influence and ideas from, and I think that you will find him as enriching as I have found him to be, and I hope he inspires you as much as he has inspired me. So this is an interview with my father, Mr. Valdery. Enjoy. So just to give you a little rundown on what the theory of enchantment is about, because that's the name of this podcast. Okay. Theory of enchantment is really about um, like bringing connection and talk to, into the world and talking about empowerment and um, it specifically uses pop culture to teach empowerment, but really pop culture is like the collection of everything we gravitate toward, the films we gravitate toward, the books, etc., and even yep. hopefully in this case, the podcast that we gravitate toward. And okay. I, I felt like you had a very inspirational story, a story of like empowerment and overcoming and one that has oftentimes inspired me. So I just thought it would be interesting if you would share a little bit to my 20 listeners <laughs> about your like personal story and how you've accomplished what you've accomplished and gotten to. Uh, well, this, this, this could take a while, but I guess that's what the podcast is for. Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I'm uh, one of, I guess, four children. Um, the youngest uh on on one set of circumstances and uh uh came and and we grew up in a tough neighborhood in the city of New Orleans uh, lower ninth ward spent half my childhood um living in the lower ninth ward in in the city and spent another half living what we would call uptown New Orleans or the central city area mm-hmm. um Product of, of parents who divorced when I was about uh, five, six years old, and unlike the traditional event, I uh, the, the the custody was awarded to my father. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then so uh, now our father had the responsibility of taking care of us while uh, he worked, and so the way it began was. Grandma would take care of us uh, during the day while he worked as a bus driver. Mm-hmm. And at night, um, he would come home and provide for us while, I guess, she worked as a licensed practical nurse. For about 
a year or two later, Grandma died. This was about 1978. And so you can see the our world was impacted by that death. And then to top it all off, a, a series of unfortunate events occurred after that. Uh, after that, uh, I was struck by a vehicle for the second time in my life, seven years old, and uh, was sat in the hospital for nine weeks, was placed in a body cast, and uh, immediately after recovering from that, had to go to school and get it done. Um, so, so from that time... How old were you when, the, when it happened the first time? I was about four, four or five years old. Oh, wow. Playing in the street, and you know, just, just, yeah, uh, and got turned, and you know, got got struck. You know, was that a was that scary? Do you remember that time? Well, you know, uh, after the hit, I blacked out, and then well, both times I blacked out, but the the first time when I blacked out, I uh, woke up and I just see my my father, <laughs> he's cradling me in his arms, taking me to the to the hospitals the first time. So yeah. I see. And of course, the second time I, I blacked out, my friend and I were struck together the second time. Um, we were uh, in another part of the city where we should not have been. Mm. Um, and my friend uh, wound up getting uh, partial brain damage uh, oh. in the process. And, um, you know, I guess the, the, from my end, it, it's been a you know decent recovery for me, but I think about that. Um, but to continue the story, <laughs> yeah. I uh, I, so I spent the rest of my my childhood, I guess, off and on, living with relatives. My father tried to uh, reconcile the matter by remarrying. Okay, and mm. we would have you know stepmothers for a short period of time, but when that didn't work out, then I would have to uh, move back in with my great aunt and my, my cousins who lived uptown. So I spent a, that's why I had this, this bounce between uptown and downtown of, of New Orleans. And so with that movement, there were times when, you know, you, you really didn't feel wanted. Mm -hmm. And so there was a, a part of me that, you know, always used education to try to make a way out of it, you know, because I felt like that was my my avenue, my my uh, focus, my my road out of the circumstances that I was was in. So I, I used education the best that was offered to me, and uh, just tried to make the most out of the the situation and do better for myself. You know. Yeah. That's, that's pretty much the the short story in a nutshell. But there were some some tough times. Uh, back then, and um, those times you don't you don't really forget, you know. Yeah. It, it kind of makes and frames who you who you are, and I'm sure that there are you know stories across this country that are like in like fashion. There's probably stories that are much worse, but you know those those were the struggles back in the the 70s and and 80s that you know I was blessed to overcome. That's awesome. And at what point did you have the realization that you wanted education to be your way out? Like, do you remember, like, was it a aha moment or was it like over time? Well, you know, I was, at the time I was always uh, 
blessed with a, a certain level of intelligence. I was always uh, gifted in math. So, you know, throughout that process, education never really left me. I would say the aha moment probably came in the about the 10th grade. And that was a, a, a pretty uh, a transitional time for us because from a family perspective, you know, my father had gotten to the point where we were living in a in a motel. Mm-hmm. And it was just my brother, your Uncle Saul, and I in that hotel with, with you know, my dad, your, your grandpa. And unbeknownst to us, my father got married okay. again, trying to <laughs> trying to make everything right, and so he had been away for quite a, a few weeks, um, and so we were walking the, the streets at times looking for my father because there were certain places that he would hang out. Meanwhile, we were about seven, eight weeks behind on the motel rent because you had to pay week to week. Mm-hmm. So just think about that process. You got. 12, 13 year olds walking the street at night uptown looking for their father. And at the same time, you have to be back in the hotel because the owner could shut you out of your room at any moment because you're nine weeks behind on your rent. So it was a a very uh, challenging dynamic. I went this route because you had asked me a question and I forgot what you said. It's about about education. Your aha moment about education. Yeah, yeah, and, and and so it was at that point where we were, I guess, on the verge of being um, taken away from our father, right, and placed in a like an orphanage. They call it the the Milne Boys Home at the time while it was open, and my cousin stepped in. My second cousin stepped in. And she offered to take care of us. Mm-hmm. And so from that point, age of 13, 14 years old, she took care of us until, you know, graduated from, from high school. And it was during that time that I guess I emphasized to myself more and more the the, the educational aspect because I wanted to get out of the the environment that I was in. I wanted, you know, better for myself and possibly for my family as well, you know, meaning my, my brothers and my fathers. Right. One thing I did cling to during that time period, because with, when all of that happened, you know, my father was still in our lives. You know, he still came by the house while we were taking care of, being taken care of by my cousin, because that was his first cousin, but that was also our second cousin I'm referring to, you know, Teresa, Olivia Miner. Yeah. And, uh, he would always make us these promises about how he would take care of and provide for us. Well, as I got older, I realized that he was embellishing. He wasn't telling the truth. But at the time that he was telling me, he was giving me hope. And he gave me something to to cling to. Right. You know, for something to, to give me inspiration and drive. So that also helped me as well, so. Yeah. That's pretty much the story behind that. And and you skipped the grade, right? I skipped the grades. Uh, this was uh, fourth grade. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I attended a, a school in the lower ninth for about 
two blocks from home and 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 uh I don't know, I think the teachers were uh <laughs> annoyed at how talkative I was, but I, I guess they found that I was finishing the work rather fast. And okay. so whenever they, they gave me a, a certain amount of work, you know, I would do it. And because I would bother other people, I guess they thought it was time to, to move me up another grade. And so back then they, they did those type of things. And, uh, you know, I don't know if they still do that now. But, yeah, they uh, I was promoted. I was trying to get get out of school. I wish I could have gotten skipped again because a part of me liked school and a part of me didn't. You know, I... I was all about the playground back then, even though I, I was blessed with some, some intelligence, you know. Right. Yeah. Um, did that, when you were skipped, did that, like, inspire you, do you think? Or do you think you just, it was just sort of, you were passing in the moment and you didn't realize, like, how? Well, actually, at the, <laughs> at, the, well, at the time, it felt good when they announced it. Mm-hmm. And when I told my father, you know, about it, he was very, you know, congratulatory and what have you. But once I got to the next grade, Chloe was scared. I found that the kids were bigger. You know, they were they were a little more intimidating. You know, back then they were uh, talking smack and what have you. Uh, so the, 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 the best way that you could prove yourself was, again, to, to do well and, and prove that you could hold your own in those grades. And so... Uh, at that level. So I found that uh, I was able to do that, and I, I guess the rest is history, uh, an ongoing history, pressing forward. Yeah. So. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. That's so interesting. Did you ever have to, or uh, I don't know, but did you ever, because you said the kids are talking smack, did you ever find yourself in, like, fights or having to fight off someone who was, like, bullying you, or you never had to in- encounter anything like that? Um, I think bullying back then was, was normal, but the key to addressing bullying was to simply ignore it. You mm-hmm. let them talk. You know, as long as they didn't put their hands on you or did anything crazy, you just understood where they came from and you just moved on. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I think the the level of bullying back then and the level of bullying today, I yeah. I'm not sure if it's the same or not, but there are certain aspects of it that is. I think if if, if you do a great job of ignoring them, they'll, they'll go away, but I know every case is different, so I guess I shouldn't make that comment at level. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's okay. Yeah. Um, okay, awesome. I'm just trying to trace your life. So you get into you get into high school. What high school did you go to? I went to Cohen High School. Right, yes. right, right. The the Hornets. Yep, Green Hornets. Green Hornets, yes. Up down the ones, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, that that particular individual, uh, Walter L. Cohen, worked for I want to say two presidents. He worked for the U.S. Comptroller of Currency. Served under two presidents. Uh, was also uh, also ran his own life insurance co- company as well. So he was very uh. Uh, inspirational uh, individual, from my understanding. Yeah. Did he have any connection to New Orleans? <laughs> yeah, yeah, he, yeah. He lived, he did all that uh, in New Orleans. He was from New Orleans. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then, matter of fact, he's buried here in uh, in in town in St. Louis Cemetery Number Two. Yeah. Nice. It's it's so funny. 
it's interesting. I think it's important to know that like the history of the people who the buildings are named after because as you're saying this, I'm actually thinking about when I went to McDonald's 35 yep. um, because McDonald's 35, I think they teach this to people like orientation, but that school is named after a gentleman named John McDonald who famously, um, basically, I think the story went that he, he wanted to make sure that former slaves he knew had an education. Right. Um, and so he built schools or he built a school to teach former slaves, give former slaves an education. Um, right. And so that's why there are all these schools or there right. were, I don't know how many there are now, but there were all these schools, certainly pre-Katrina, named right. after him, named after him. Right. And, um, and, and part of that story, Chloe, is that he had a, a large presence in Baltimore and New Orleans. He donated a lot of the, the real estate, from my understanding, where the schools are today. And he's also responsible for donating City Park to the city of New Orleans. Oh. Yeah, um, so he had a very, yeah, he had a very huge presence, uh, influence on the city, yeah. Good to know. Didn't know that. Yep. Uh, <laughs> um, and so, so what, at what point, or was there a point in high school when you knew that you wanted to do what you're doing professionally now to go into banking? Uh, well, banking is <laughs> not a decision that I, I reasonably wanted to get into. Uh, okay. I guess I started, it hit me in about um, either 11th grade or, or senior year mm -hmm. uh, where I took up a course in accounting, and I really liked it. I said, man, this is just something I wouldn't mind doing. So after I, uh, you know, took the course in high school, made the decision to go into that, went to Dillard University, uh, took up accounting, mm -hmm. um, wound up, you know, doing well in that, but I was kind of, I guess, divided because I had a responsibility, of course, to pursue that career, but as you know, I was also in the military, so I had to fulfill that obligation as well. So I had to do the eight-year stint with the military while maintaining, um, I guess, the, the skills necessary to 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 use in the in the banking world, right? And what what was the reason behind the decision to join the military? Well, yeah, that's a good question, <laughs> and a good question deserves a good answer. So I was given a a partial scholarship mm -hmm. at Dillard University, mm -hmm. but I didn't understand the process mm -hmm. that as you did well at the school they would increase the amount of the scholarship. But what? since your father didn't know that at the time, <laughs> your father said to himself, you know, I need a security blanket. So I went in to one of those, uh, I don't know, what they call it? Uh, like ROTC or something? Uh, what, what do they call it? A fair. It's one of those school fairs, you know, they had in the, in the, uh, in the gym. Right. And all these businesses came out, and they were, you know, advertising their various things, giving their spills, and ROTC was, was there. Even though they were part of the school already, they were giving their spills. And I saw that 
was a three-year ROTC scholarship program, fully paid. You know, I was like, man, this is interesting. All you have to do is uh, be somewhat athletic and be smart. I said, oh, this is up my alley right here. I can do it. Yeah. And so, and plus, they paid you a monthly stipend. I think at the time it was $100 a month. I said, oh, this is great. So I can get a stipend. I can be ROTC. Plus, I can keep my other scholarship. Well, right. come to find out, I couldn't keep those scholarships and have the three-year deal. So I just stayed on three-year deal and, and kept the scholarship. But that was the reason behind the, the scholarship. So right. I just wanted a security blanket. And in exchange for eight years of, of service uh, in the Army Reserve or four years active duty, either or. Uh, so I want to I want to back up just for a little bit because um, sure. I'm wondering how like your experience at Dillard was, especially given like, you know, Dillard is a really, I think, I don't know if famous is the right word, but I'll go with that. Famous HBCU. So right. it has it has that legacy. I'm actually not sure. I'm not aware of the history of Dillard, like who founded Dillard or I should know that. But um, does that, did attending that university like ha also like shape and mold your sense of self in any way? Um, you know what? Um, not really. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I you know okay. I, I, I was trying to again my focus was on getting an education, mm -hmm. doing well, getting a, a degree, and making sure that I had a, a, a decent job to provide for family. I really didn't pay attention to the fact that they were HBCU. There were a bunch of scholarships that were being offered, Chloe. They happened to offer the highest number. I think it was Dillard at the time. Xavier had offered a certain amount. You know, offered a certain amount, and and so I went with with Dillard because they offered that higher amount. Um, yeah. and, and it's funny because as I think about this, you know, my father was offered a, a scholarship at Dillard at the age of sixteen. Really? He told me that he could not attend because he couldn't afford the books, and I I just. I said, man, that's sad, man. And so he wound up going to the Air Force. Right, and right, from, right. Yeah, and from that point on, he wound up having, uh, you know, spent in Germany, learned the German language, and, you know, that was that. So, uh, but, but as far as the HBCU experience, yes, I met a, you know, a lot of friends, uh, obviously a lot of, but didn't really take part in the, the I guess the the social life, the school life there, it was it was all business for me. Yeah. Yeah, I just I just you were, wanted to you were get it serious done. from the beginning. Yeah, yeah, I, I I it was just one of those uh those those uh, decisions where I had to get where I had to get and and just yeah. move on. That's yeah. true. You know, I'm, as I, as you're saying this and as I'm asking you this question, I'm realizing two things. Um. I'm realizing how much I grew up with, with like unknowing that there was sort of an HBCU consciousness in the family. Because yes. first of all, there are, I don't know how, I mean, there may be only, is Xavier an H, isn't Xavier also an HBCU? Yes, yes. So I didn't realize how many were in New Orleans. Yep. <laughs> right? Yeah, sure, there was one too, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yes. 
Southern University of Washington. Right. And I'm, just, and I'm just realizing why, while I'm saying this, that it, it, has, it has been such a presence in, New or- in Louisiana. Um, yeah. And it was just like, growing up, it was just like, oh, yes, of course, like a common knowledge thing. Right, right. It's something you take for granted, just even though, you know, we don't live too far from the university. Yeah, they, and they've been there uh, quite a while. Uh, the school started out as a straight university, uh, and then I want to say in the 1900s, there was a merger between straight university and New Orleans University, and then it became Dillard. I believe it started, um, major funding occurred when the founder of Sears and Roebuck, mm-hmm. either oh, him or Rosenwald. Yeah, exactly, which is why there's a hall there named after him, Rosenwald Hall. He donated a great deal of money uh, to the school because he wanted um, blacks to, to get an education. And mm-hmm. so that's the, the tie-in behind that. And so uh, Delhi University continues to, to stand to this day, um, the the dean who was in uh, at the time, Samuel Du Bois Cook, as you may or may not know, he uh, went to school with Dr. Martin Luther King, graduated together, and so based on that uh, camaraderie and, and friendship and and other things, when he was dean, they always had a um, a strong relationship with the the, um, the the Jewish population and a lot of right. Jewish civil rights um, um, leaders at the time. Right. So they always maintain that. So. Right, right. Yeah, that's, yeah. So, that's so fascinating. Yeah. Um, I, ha- I had a question. Oh, wait. I, it was a two-part question. Okay. Um, okay, so, so remind me to come back to this question of the military, um, but can you talk a little bit because we have this in common, like father, like daughter, like we we have both been in some ways because you brought up Julius Rosenwald, we have both been in some ways affected by uh, a relationship with the Jewish community as individuals and I guess communally. Can you yeah. talk a little bit about how your father impacted that in your life? Yeah, I, I sure can, and it's just a, a, a strange dynamic. I would have to, I guess, tell you a little bit about his, his history, and then, you know, get into it. Um, my my father, your grandfather, um, after his spit in the, the Air Force, he spent some time in Germany. I should say not after, but during his spit in the Air Force, spent time in Germany, learned the. German language and was fascinated in some way, shape, or form with the Jewish connection in Germany. Mm-hmm. So much so that he named his, his three sons uh German names. So he was he was fascinated somehow with that with that German influence and I guess the cleanliness that w- would have you. Um, after he got out of the Air Force, of course, uh, got married, you know, had his family or what have you, um, he had his own uh, wig shop in town. I guess it was in the mid to late 60s, early 70s. And it was during that time that 
um, he came across many uh, Jewish retailers who also owned shops within the same block. Mm. Supposedly, I was named after a Jewish person by the name of Max Zeldin, who I never met. Uh, from my understanding, he was a, a lawyer, mm-hmm. if I remember correctly. Um, and I, when I looked it up some years ago, I want to say he uh, passed in 1992. Mm-hmm. Um, but I never, I, but I never. Uh, but my my father was fascinated somehow, some way, from that experience in, in working on Dry Street, running his own uh, wig shop, uh, because of his interaction with. Uh, Jewish retailers and what have you and the impact that they had on him in, in helping him to craft and, and, and run his business. Mm-hmm. And I guess it was during that interaction that he became uh, fascinated with Judaism mm-hmm. and in and out, uh, off and on, uh, yeah. <laughs> dabbled in it and and I I don't know how this connection was made, but I guess eventually he had joined the Truro Synagogue in the the city of New Orleans, which is I guess uptown, which we would call the uptown part of the the city. At some point, uh, supposedly I never verified this one way or the other. Uh, I don't know what the process is, but supposedly uh, I'm enrolled as a member of the Duro Synagogue <laughs> in the city of New Orleans because of that connection, that influence. I've never yeah. gone there to verify one way or the other. Yeah. But, but, you know, that just goes to show you the, the impact of, or influence that they, they had on, on my father. So that's yeah. a, the, the best version of the story I have. I, I, <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and your middle name has something to do with that, right? Exactly, exactly, exactly. Uh, Max Jacob Valdry, yep, that's 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 my name, yep. Yes. <laughs> but all, all three of us have that, uh, I guess, that biblical uh, Jewish influence. Your, your other, my other brothers, uh, middle names are James and, and Joseph, so um, mm-hmm. that's that. But yes, the Jacob one stands out, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah. Here you are. Awesome. Yeah. Um, Okay, so I want to circle back to the military, uh, military experience. Well, how, okay. did that, how did that experience help shape you? What did you learn from being in the military? Um, uh, and did it contribute to, you know, your de- character development in any way, do you think? Oh, greatly. Look, the, the one thing that I learned from being in the military is discipline and the advantage of getting up and doing things early, just taking advantage of the limited time in the day. You'd be surprised how much you can get done early in the morning. And, you know, the way the military is set up, you wake up, you know, 4 or 5 a.m., and the first thing you do, you know, after you say your prayers, get on your knees, thank God for another day, is you assemble together and you get ready for exercise and so you you you, you get with that that's that squad that platoon and you run around the city you run around the base for about 30 to 45 minutes singing chants singing different cadences 
developing your singing voice, you know, and, and unknowingly, and yeah. and, uh, <laughs> and, yeah. and so, and and that and that's what kind of builds the the camaraderie and the, the the unity in the in the military. So, I would say that the military influence on my life involved uh, camaraderie, discipline, and understanding the that time is limited and the importance or the advantage and the blessing of of being able to to get things done early you know there was, at the time there was a saying chloe if we can do more before 9 a.m than most people do all day that's a true saying uh, the, the, the army had that as a as a motto and so right. just being able to, to to take advantage of the time that's that's given to you uh, it's just something that I still carry on to this day. Amazing. Yep. Amazing. Yep, yep. So we have time for about one more question, and then you okay. can have whatever final thing you want. Um, given your experience of overcoming hardship um, and your focus on education and discipline, as you said, and maybe yep. this is giving away the answer, uh, what advice would you give to other people who are overcoming hardship in particular, in particular, young men, because I think these days, young men, especially in our community, um, need role models to look toward. And, you know, I've been volunteering in, in my community and trying to be a role model for all, all the young people in my community, really. But given your experience, what advice would you, um, in particular toward young Black men, uh, what advice would you uh, uh, give them, given your uh, experience in your upbringing? Uh, I think a couple of things. One, don't give up. There's always a temptation to want to do that, to look at the circumstances around you and and want to give up. Uh, I would say don't ever do that. Mm -hmm. The second thing is don't uh, portray yourself as a victim even though you are, mm. you know, don't, don't position yourself in a way that, um, it is a requirement for society to take care of you. Be the type of individual that's willing to go out there and get it, get it legally, to get it ethically, but mm. to, to do the work, maintain your integrity in all circumstances. Mm -hmm. uh, do what's very necessary to get the job done. Um, I would I would also add to that uh, the the importance of walking uh, against the grain of what's the word I want to use. Uh, this may be a strange one because I I know what your podcast is based on, but I would say it's important to walk against the grain of pop culture okay. and stereotypes and stereotype. You know what I mean? Right, right. Because yeah, yeah. you, you know, because you are a black person, or it, you know, it really doesn't matter who, but because you are this this individual, most people are going to perceive you a certain way. Mm -hmm. You know. Just because they perceive you in that way 
doesn't mean you have to be that way. Right. Be willing to walk against the grain for that which is good. Mm. No, that. So, go ahead. Yeah. So it's like it's like almost like redefining the pop culture, right? Redefining. Exactly. Culture, right? You know, just yeah. because people see you as some as an individual, uh, you know, we can use a black person, but it, it, that doesn't automatically mean that all you want to do is play sports. Uh, right. Bands, uh, you know, just, just yeah. running the street. That's that's what I'm talking about. That's they walk against the grain. You got to dare to be different. You know, and if it means educating yourself and and uh, doing that which promotes integrity and good and righteousness and and, and morality and prudence, be proud mm-hmm. of that. Stand on top of that and and just drive forward. You want to make yourself a, a, a model citizen in this society. You mm-hmm. want to prove others wrong, you know. Mm-hmm. And that includes everybody who thinks you should fit in a certain category. Mm-hmm. Prove them wrong. Prove them that you're better than that and that you desire to contribute to society and not be a, a, a victim or a pariah. Amazing. Well, Dad, <laughs> hey. it's been really enriching. Um, oh, thank you. I, I appreciate you coming on the show, the podcast. Oh, it's so sweet. Thank you so much. If you have any final thoughts to add, you are more than welcome to. Oh, it's so nice of you, you know. I came <laughs> on here and asked me serious questions. I gave you serious answers. I get a chance to be jovial or joke or anything. But I'll just hold back a little. I'll hold back a little. Okay. Keep to myself and just uh, keep the conversation uh, succinct and um, sober. There you go. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you again. And Thank you, dear. Love you. As always, I love you very much. Uh, so sweet. I'm going to wipe back the tears as you hang up the phone. <laughs> <laughs> Take care. <laughs> All right, sweetie. Have a good one. You too. Bye-bye. All right. Today's quote comes from my favorite poet of all time, Maya Angelou. This poet reminds me of both the fleeting nature of life, but also the incredible joy and gratefulness that we can get to experience while living on this earth. So Maya Angelou once said, I may cry. And I will die, but my spirit is the soul of every spring. Look for me, and you will see. I am present in the songs that children sing. That's another episode of The Theory of Enchantment. I hope you have enjoyed it. I hope it has moved you, motivated you, inspired you. And until next time, I'm Chloe Valderie.